Hey, this is Caleb Cole, pastor of Project Church in Sacramento. And man, I am so excited for you to hear this word. I believe God is going to encourage you, strengthen you, and challenge you through it. So get ready to receive from God today. In the early 1900s, there was a man by the name, or a boy, by the name of Clive Staples. Clive was nine years old when he found out that his mother had terminal cancer. And knowing, especially in this day, with very little treatment, he was raised in in the church. And so he did what any nine-year-old would do. He began to pray to God. He said, God, would you heal my mother? Would you take away her cancer? And at the age of nine years old, within a, a few weeks, his mother had died. She had passed away, and his prayer had gone unanswered. So at nine years old, this began him on a journey of where by the time he was a teenager, Clive Staples was a full-blown atheist, did not even believe in a God. He said, there is no God, because if there was, he wouldn't have had me lose my mother at such a young age. He was accepted at the age of 17 into the prestigious Oxford University, where he went off to study philosophy, religion, because they all had to study religion at that time. And began to grow. He was an incredible writer, an incredible uh, intellectual. He, he was incredibly gifted. And while at Oxford, God began to stir his heart. Clive began to feel God tugging at him that, that maybe there was a God and that, that maybe God was real. And Clive Staples, he wrote this about his experience a few years later. He said that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. Clive Staples, who we know as C.S. Lewis. This is a little of his story. C.S. Lewis, who became one of the greatest theologians, writers uh, of the last hundred years, had an encounter with God. And I think that many of you maybe feel like him. Maybe you've been reluctant in coming to God. You, you felt what he felt, a little dejected, a little reluctant, and yet God continues to tug at your heart, to pull at your heart. I want to tell you today that God is not afraid of your skepticism. He's not threatened by your questions. And I think for too long in the church, we, we told people that you can't ask the hard questions, that those questions aren't welcome, or you can't be skeptical at all. You can't have doubt ever. You need to just believe, blind faith. If you have a little bit of doubt, if you don't have full faith, then you don't really know him. You don't really love him. And I think that's a lie that's been pervaded in the church for far too long. And I want to tell you, God, he invites it. He invites your questions. He invites your skepticism. And some of you have come in here feeling much like C.S. Lewis. The pain of your past has you all messed up inside. You come in here and you say, Caleb, I got a lot of baggage. I'm a little bit jacked up. I got a lot of drama. 
I don't think God would accept me as I am with my questions, with my skepticism. But I love what he said. He said, there is a divine humility that accepts a convert even on such terms. I don't know if you you grasp that, but what he's saying is that we have a God that is so humble and so loving that even in our mess, our skepticism, our hesitation, he accepts us with arms wide open. And he says, there's still a place for you. I still love you. Today we're jumping back into the book of Mark. If you've been with us, if you've been a part of our church this year, you know that in January we started walking verse by verse through the book of Mark. Today we're jumping back in. We took a little break to do a relationship series over the last four weeks, but we're back. So go to Mark chapter 3, the gospel of Mark. We're going to be reading from verse 20 through 30. The gospel of Mark is called the gospel of Mark because Mark, who was uh, Peter's like son in the faith, he wrote it down. Now, he wrote it down based on Peter's dictating it to him. Peter spent all the time with Jesus. He witnessed all of these stories, witnessed all of these miracles. And Peter told Mark, and Mark wrote it down. And so we call it the Gospel of Mark because he was the one that penned it. But it was from the heart, the mind of Peter. And we've been walking through this journey, and today we come to a passage that I'll be honest with you, I've never taught on. I never taught on it because I never wanted to. Because I said, that one, I ain't touching. I'm not going there. And uh, the great thing about walking verse by verse through a book of the Bible is you can't run. You can't hide. And so today we're going to dig in, and and I'll just be honest, I I think that uh, this is a topic maybe you've never thought of, but it's also one that I've struggled with and wrestled with this week. This is not an easy text to teach from, but I'm going to do my best to bring clarity to what I believe God is wanting to speak to us from here. So let's go to Mark chapter 3. I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis, which inspired the title of my message today, which is Lunatic, Liar, or Lord. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He wrote this in the book, Mere Christianity, and he wrote Mere Christianity for skeptics like him. He said, I'm writing this book for people like me, agnostics, atheists, people that are are running from God, that they don't know if they believe in God, and I'm writing this book. If you ever get a chance, one of the great reads that I would encourage all Christians to walk through, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Here's what he said. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. Who is he to you? Who is it to you? I want you to think about that today. I want you to process that today. As I bring this message, because I've walked through life and I have a lot of friends who know God and a lot of friends who are far from God. And often my friends who don't believe in, in, in Jesus or God as a Savior, they'll tell me, I think Jesus was a great teacher. He's a great moral teacher. He had a lot of great things to say about being a neighbor and love. But as C.S. Lewis said, he doesn't leave it up to that. He can't be a great moral teacher and at the same time have claimed to himself be God. Because if you claim to be God and you're not, you are a lunatic or you're a liar. And so this idea that, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher... Jesus didn't leave it open to that. He's either who he said he was or he's not. So let's read. I'm going to start Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. We're going to stop there. Then he went home, him being Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So first, Jesus is described by his own family as a lunatic. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever felt a little loony yourself, but my wife, she left me for four days this week with a seven, six-year-old, and four-year-old. And by the end of those four days, like, your boy was feeling a little loony. The lunatic had rose. And the last night, she called me around 7 o'clock, and she had told me she'd be back Friday night. And she called me and she said, hey, I think we're going to stay one more night. And I said, uh-uh. <laughs> Caleb, don't play that. You've had enough girl time. It's time to come home. Your husband needs you. Your children need you. I'm desperate here. I think she could hear the desperation in my voice. And so she came home at 1 a.m. that night. Thank you, Jesus. But, man, I think we've all had moments of being a little loony. But here, Jesus' own family, they go. It says that they seize him because they believe he's lost his mind. And the word used here, this word seize, it's a verb, which is the same word used when they seized John the Baptist right before they beheaded him. It's the same word used a few chapters later in chapter 13 when they arrest Jesus and take him and eventually crucify him. They seize him. The same word used. So his, his own family go and they, they grab him. They grab hold of him. Now I think it's interesting because he's considered a lunatic by his own family. I think some of you in here can relate to that. Because how many of you know that when you begin to walk with Jesus and follow Jesus, your, your, your language changes. Your, your, your actions change. How you live changes. The places you go change. And suddenly your friends and maybe even your family start to say things like, man, you've really changed. Man, you're, you're not as fun as you used to be. Man, th there's something different about you and I don't like it. And then they even begin to say like, "How you're, you're one of those Jesus freaks now. 
You're a lunatic. Why? You're giving your money away to, to help to, to a church, to, to build a building, to help kids in Africa? I mean, I, why would you do that? Why would you just give your money away? They start to think you're loony. And some of you can relate to this. But let me tell you, if you've experienced that, you're in good company. Because Jesus himself experienced that. Not only that, but I was thinking about it. And over the last, like, especially 50 years, we've had multiple people come forward and claim to be Jesus. And they're lunatics, right? And they're in cults or communes. And they're like, oh, I'm Jesus. They claim to be Jesus. And I was thinking about it because I'm like, you know what's interesting? That all these people claim to be Jesus, you never hear anyone claim to be Muhammad. You never hear anyone claim to be Buddha. You never hear anyone claim to be Baal, if we're going to the Old Testament. You never hear anyone claim to be these other deities or gods, but they so often claim to be Jesus. You want to know why? Because Satan knows that's the one name that he must and wants to corrupt. He wants to corrupt the name of Jesus. But let me tell you, that name is incorruptible. It's the name above all names. It's the Savior of the world. Jesus. But lunatics, they'll try to claim, oh, I'm I'm Jesus. There was only one Jesus. Only one Jesus. His family they start to think he, he's lost his mind. He's a lunatic. And I wanted to explain why culturally this was happening. First of all, I don't know if you, you've been paying attention over this series, but now over the last chapter and a half, everywhere Jesus goes, there's a crowd. And not a crowd of like hundreds. There are crowds of thousands. In fact, to the point where Jesus is now teaching from shores and he has getaway boats Because the people are pressing on him as he begins to teach and touch and heal. They press on him to where his life is at risk. In this moment, it had become detrimental even to their health. The disciples and Jesus, I don't know if you paid attention when I was reading verse 21. It says that they couldn't even eat. Because the people are pressing in on them. A chapter earlier, I taught a few weeks back that he was in his town teaching in a home, and the entire town showed up. It was a town of 10,000 people. Can you imagine thousands of people outside this home as Jesus is trying to teach to them? Jesus couldn't go anywhere. Why? Because the people were being drawn to him. But the people didn't necessarily believe that he was who he said he was. The crowds were looking for a show. They were looking for some entertainment because Jesus was, they heard, he opens blind eyes. He he, he heals lepers' skin. He brings the dead back to life. He casts demons out like, let's go for this show. There wasn't a lot to do in this day. Didn't have Netflix. Like, y'all, y'all binge watch Stranger Things 3 in like one day. And so they're they're going, many of them, for entertainment to see Jesus. And and the, the family, they begin to see And not only that, but in this day, culturally, the oldest son always took over the family business. And so Jesus should have been taking over the family business. I mean, they're they're in carpentry. And so here he is. He's in his early 30s. His father has gotten older, and it's time to get ready to take over the family business. And, And Jesus is all around the region, and thousands of people are gathering to him. In fact, at one point, um, in, in another one of the Gospels, his family shows up, and he says, who are my mother and father? 
They say, your mom and dad are outside. He says, who are my mother and father? He says, my family are those that follow me, that hear the word and do it. Now, I want you to hear, this was not a rejection of his family. Because if you think about, fast forward in the future, Jesus actually implores his disciples to take care of his, his mother Mary. Jesus did not reject his family. So often people have read that and like, oh, he rejected his own family. It wasn't a rejection of his family. It was an illustration. Jesus' own brothers are his closest friends. They follow him. They're his disciples. He accepted his family. So I've seen Christians who are like, my family, they don't believe the way I think, so I'm done with them. Like, be gone with you. Jesus did it. I'm doing it. Who are my brothers and sisters? Be gone. I have my, my family, the family of God. I'm thankful because some of you don't have family, but this church has become your family. But let me tell you, those of you that do have family, God does not call us to reject them. He calls us to continue to implore them, pray for them, to tell them, and to set an example for them. Jesus did not reject his family, even though here they in a way reject him. They say, you're a lunatic. He says, I don't think I am. I'm about my father's business. You know, the family's rejection of Jesus, it's echoed. We see it happen in John chapter 7, verse 5. It says that his own brothers don't believe in him. In in John 7, 20 and 8, 48 and 52, there's accusations again that Jesus has a demon. Let me tell you today, you may not believe in Jesus, but I'm here to tell you he believes in you. You may have been running from Jesus, but I'm here to tell you he's pursuing you. And so I know you maybe came in here with different background for different reasons. You maybe have called Jesus a lunatic. He will not reject you. He did not reject his family. He accepted them because eventually they came around. I want to tell you, Jesus accepts you. Even if in this moment you reject him, he's pursuing you. He's reaching out to you. He loves you. He believes in you. Second, we see here that Jesus is called a liar. So he's either lunatic, his family says he is, or he's called liar. Let's read verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, the scribes were the teachers of the law, they're like the Pharisees. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And I don't have time to get into Beelzebul, but essentially it's a word, uh, and the background of it, it's a word that means Satan. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus, essentially, I'm going to pause there. He says, listen, guys, your argument makes no sense. He says, you're saying I'm casting out a demon with a demon? He says, no kingdom divided can stand. No house divided can stand. You all have experienced this, right? In your jobs, when there's division, there's chaos, there's unhealth. You experience this in your families, you know, y'all come, we all have dysfunction, and when there's a lot of dysfunction, there's chaos, and the family unit is is broken and messed up. No house divided can stand. And he says, how could I be casting out a demon with the demon? 
He says, essentially, you know that Satan is the most powerful being on this earth, and I just cast him out. So what does that make me? More powerful. What does that make me? God. This is what he's claiming. He says, your argument, it's full of fallacies. It's full of issues. And then he goes on. And this is the verse or the section that I've never taught on. I've honestly ran from it. But we're going to jump into it. You guys ready? Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is it. The unpardonable sin. The unforgivable sin. So first I want to focus on, on the beginning of that little section where Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. So I want to tell you right now, some of you are like, I've done some bad stuff. All sins can and will be forgiven. So he said, I've, I've done some, you don't know where I've been, Caleb. I, I mean, I was watching Benny Hinn the other day on the TV, and I was laughing and making fun of him. And like, I think I blasphemed, and all sins will be forgiven. All sins, it doesn't matter your past, what you've done, where you've been, what you did last night. All sins will be forgiven. All. But, he goes on and says there's one. The unpardonable sin if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you something. I want to start with this. I've had a lot of people come to me in my years as a pastor. They've been like, Caleb, I read this verse and, and I'm pretty sure I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. So, I'm going to hell. And I want to tell you guys right now, if you think you've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, you have and you're going to hell. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if you think, if you think, if you believe you've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, you haven't. Because if you had, you wouldn't care. But if you come to me and if you thought it like, dude, I think I did that one time. Like I made fun of, uh, of somebody who was like experiencing something in church and I went to this one really weird church and I was mocking it and, and, and you think you did it, let me tell you, you haven't because you wouldn't feel guilty about it, you wouldn't care. But if you care and you're worried, like that's a good sign, all right? So everybody just take a deep breath. Okay, I, I might not be going to hell. You know, I think that the church, the church we love to focus on the happy stuff, the good stuff, and, and that's a good thing. I actually had a pastor, or not a pastor, I've had people come to me and be like, Caleb, we need revival. And if we're going to have revival, you got to preach on sin more. And so they're really happy today uh, because I'm talking about the unpardonable sin. But let me tell you something. When we have that mentality, it's because we believe that, that our salvation and our eternity is dependent on the works of the flesh. And I want to tell you, your, your salvation is not dependent on your works. It was already paid for and done by his works. Because of what he did on the cross, you have eternity. Because of the price he paid, you have a future. So preaching on sin, I, listen, we, we need to become more like Jesus. And that means sin should leave. But that's not something that is done by us. That's something that's done by him. 
That's why we say all the time, listen, we're not about behavior modification. We're about heart transformation. We let God change people's hearts. Their behavior will follow. But the church for too long has been so focused on behavior modification, and we wonder why people go back to the same thing. Why? Because until our heart changes, nothing will last. We need heart transformation here today. Heart transformation. So listen, if you're here, you're like, Caleb, I'm worried. I'm worried. Let me tell you, that's a good sign that that heart transformation is taking place. I'm worried that I've sinned too much. Let me tell you, heart transformation is taking place. The good thing is, it doesn't matter how great of a sinner you are in here. Some of you are really good. Like, you are really good at sinning. I've seen your your Insta stories. You're like, no, I'm playing. Uh, You're really good at it. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter if you're the best sinner in here or the worst sinner in here. You sin the most or the, the littlest. Jesus is the answer to all of your sin. He paid for it. It's not about how good you can be. It's about how good he is. He took it all. So you, some of you are striving for perfection, and when you fail, you think you're destined for, for, for damnation. I want to tell you, he was the perfect one, and as long as you lean on him, you are covered. Let his perfection cover you. All right, that was not in my notes. Let's get back here. So I think that as I've talked to people about this, the great thing about the Bible is that we have the entirety of it. Because the problem is that people read one verse and then they assume they know what that means and they don't take the whole Bible into consideration and they don't take other verses that are actually talking about the same topic and say, oh, this gives me more clarity onto that verse. And so that's why we need the entirety of the scriptures. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 6. And these verses are talking about what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. Because when Jesus said it, I was like, that was kind of vague. Like, maybe I did do it. <laughs> when, the first time I read it when I was younger, I'm like, shoot, I think I'd done that before. So now we go, to the, we go to another place in Scripture that talks about this idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to break it down little by little. So, for it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. Now, let me real quick uh, talk to you about this word enlightened. Because some of you are like, okay, so that's talking about being saved. No, it's not talking about being saved. The Greek word here used is the word photo. Photizo. And, and photizo is the same word we use. It's where we get our word for photograph. All right? That's the root, the root of our word photograph. Photizo. We're not talking about salvation. What we're talking about is a word that means the light has, the light hits something so that it can be seen. You're mentally aware you, you have been given light by knowledge or teaching or you are informed. That's what this is talking about. So first, those who were once enlightened, so you've been given the knowledge, there's been light shined on it, you understand, okay, a little bit more about who Jesus is, about the gospel, the good news, okay, let's go on. Those who have experienced the good things of heaven. Is there anybody here who's experienced the good things of heaven? That you have a good God that's given you good gifts. You've been blessed by him. I think every person in the room, whether you 100% believe in God or not, I want to tell you something. You've experienced the good things of heaven. Because God created this earth and every day he's bringing heaven to earth. He actually gave us the call to bring heaven to earth. And so when you experience these good things of heaven, 
it still doesn't mean salvation. But it means, man, you, you felt and experienced some of, the, of God on this planet, whether it's through love, through a relationship, through a gift, through a job, you've experienced the good things of heaven. It goes on. And shared in the Holy Spirit. So some of you are like, okay, so is this salvation? No, it's still not salvation. But essentially, you've experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. You know that people who don't know God can be spoken to by the Holy Spirit, right? You've walked into a church service and you've experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has spoken through another person to you and gave clarity into something in your life. So these people have, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the Holy Spirit. It goes on. Who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Let me tell you something. The Word of God is good. When you read it, when you heard it, hear it taught, when you experience it, there's a goodness that comes to it. You taste it, and there's a goodness attached to it. And again, this isn't salvation. This is maybe somebody in here who comes to church a lot, and you're really smart. You know a lot about the Bible. You've learned a lot about the Bible. You're one of those people that goes to the bar at night, and you debate all the people in the bar about Jesus, even though you're like, I don't even know if I, you know, I'm following Jesus, but I know a lot about Jesus. I know a lot about the Word of God, and you love to go. You debate everybody, and you're not even sure you're all in, but, but you know. Why? Because you've experienced, you've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and it made you hungry for it. It made you want to know more about it. It made you want to discuss it. You get a little buzz, and that's all that's coming out of you because that goodness has soaked into you. And then it goes on and says the power of the age to come. What's the power of the age to come. Miracles, signs and wonders. Some of you are like, I've never seen miracles or signs and wonders. Have you ever had a prayer answered? That's a miracle from God. That's a sign of God, a wonder of God that he's answered a prayer that you've prayed. This is breaking down this idea of blasting of the Holy Spirit. So here we go. Are you ready? And who then, so after all that, who then turn away from God? It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. Some of you are a little freaked out right now. I don't know, Caleb. Is this me? It's not me. Here's, I, I want to give some clarity to this. Here's what I believe. I, I want to give you an example. I was meeting with a guy a few years back, and he, he's like, hey, I want to talk to you about the Bible. I have a lot of questions. I've been learning a lot. I've been reading a lot. Uh, I'm not a Jesus follower, but, but I, I really am interested. So I sat down with him for probably an hour. We dug into the Bible. We dug into the scriptures. We dug into the word of God, and I'm bringing out, you know, some clarity, some truth. I'm answering his questions. At the end of it, I'm like, dude, I think this guy's getting it. So I just asked him, I said, so what do you think? The Bible says it's easy. Just confess with your mouth, Jesus, believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. Do you, do you want to do that right now? And he says, I, I, I believe it. But does that mean I have to live different? And I say, yes. It means 
that you follow him instead of following you. Because the, the issue with humanity is that we are our own God. I said it means now you're saying I'm not the God anymore, you're the God. I'm not following only what I want anymore, I'm going to follow what you want. I'm not walking in obedience to my fleshly desires. I'm walking in obedience to what you've directed me and what you are going to direct me to do. And he said, honestly, I, I can't do that. I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I like being in charge. I like how I'm living. I like doing me. And I, I can't make that decision. I don't want to do that. You see, the Bible says that even the demons believe and they shudder. You see, belief is not enough. You can believe in God. You can believe in Jesus. But until you say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life, you are claiming he's a lunatic or a liar. And so what's happening here, and, and throw back up Hebrews 6. What's happening here is essentially what many people do. They experience they're enlightened. They experience the good things of heaven. They share in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has spoken to them. They've experienced the Holy Spirit. They've come into church multiple times. The goodness of the Word of God speaks to their heart. There's power that's come through their life. They've seen prayers answered. They pray still. But when it comes to making God the Lord of their life, they will not do it. They say, I believe. I've tasted. I've experienced. I, I, I've, I've touched it all. I saw it, I heard it, I felt it, I experienced it, but I can't walk in it. I can't do it. And when you do that for a lifetime, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, why would Jesus have said this to these Pharisees? Because I think this is going to give us some clarity today. These scribes. He says this to them. After they tell him, you cast a demon out through a demon. Why would he say this to them? Here's why. Because Jesus meant that their influence was gone. Jesus meant that their living, their income, their well-being, their leadership was gone. Jesus meant they weren't the best teacher in the city anymore. Jesus meant everyone wasn't going to come to them anymore. He was going to go to them. So here's what I believe Jesus was saying. He was saying, you know I'm the son of God. You know I'm the king of kings. You know I'm the Messiah. You believe it. You've seen it. You've tasted it. You've experienced it. And yet still you are rejecting me and you're actually calling me a demon, which isn't just about you, but now you're doing it to lead others astray too. He says to these scribes, he's like, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit because you know that I am the answer, that I am the truth, that I am the way, that I am the life, and yet still you're calling me a demon. Why? Because you care more about what you have on this earth than what you will have in eternity. You care more about your influence, your leadership, your money, your, your, your teaching credentials, your power on this earth than you do me and eternity, and you care more about yourself than everyone else. And so he calls them out, and he says, this is what you've done. 
You see, the sad thing about it is you know it. You know it. And so today I want to ask you, Jesus, he's either lunatic, he's liar, or the last thing, if the band will come back, is he's Lord. You have to decide for yourself who he is to you. Chris Valaton said something. My wife shared this quote with me last night, and it was so good, I threw it on there this morning. He said, whoever God is to you, he will be through you. Therefore, to discover your destiny, describe your deity. Whoever he is to you, he will be through you. So to discover your destiny, describe your deity. And I want to tell you right now, there's a lot of people walking through this life, and you know who their deity is? It's them. And so when you describe your deity, you know what you're describing? Selfishness, pride. You're describing self. And so some of us have said for, for maybe too long that, that Jesus is lunatic or he's liar. But the reason I share this with you is because when you start to declare that Jesus is Lord, there is a destiny that is incredible for you. When you start to declare, you know what? My God is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. All of a sudden, what operates through you and flows through you is joy and hope and selflessness and sacrifice. And there's a difference in how you live in this world. You can live like Jesus is a liar. You can live like he's a lunatic. You can make yourself the God. But let me tell you, you'll never walk fulfilled. You'll never walk in purpose. Your destiny will always be lessened. Something will always be lacking. There will be no fulfillment. But when you say, Jesus, be Lord. And the Lord begins to walk through you and work through you and flow through you. You live differently. And there's nothing like it. There is nothing like it. So today, who is he? Who is he? Is he lunatic? Is he liar? Is he Lord? The Lord that takes all your sins. He took death and gave you life. You deserve death. I deserve death. But he gave us life. Can we pray today? I know I've gone long. Thank you for your patience. Today, I, I want to close. We're going to go out from this place and we're going to live in this world, believing like and, and walking in a way that says Jesus is Lord. But some of you need to declare today in your life that he's that. Maybe you, you say to me, Caleb, I, I've never believed. I've never received. I've never confessed. Today's your day. Or maybe you did on one time, but, but you ran from God. And today you want to come back into right standing with the Savior. I'm going to count to three. And if today you want to declare that Jesus is Lord in your life for the first time or to recommit yourself anew and afresh, I want you to lift your hand. One, two, three. Say it today. Jesus is Lord. Raise those hands. Yes, hands are going up all around the room. Come on, church. Give God some praise that Jesus is Lord. Can we stand to our feet? Man, this is what it's all about, church. Our prayer team is making their way forward. We're going to close right now.
We're not going to sing because we, we've gone long. They, they were ready. They want to sing, but I'm not going to let them. We're going to get you guys out of here. I know you guys have beautiful voices, but get off my stage. No, I'm kidding. Just joking, guys. No idea why I said that. Our prayer team's down here. If you raise your hand to receive Jesus, maybe you just need prayer for something in your life. They're here. They want to encourage you. They want to pray for you. They want to just spend a little bit of time with you. So as we close, after I pray, feel free to come forward and have prayer with them. But I want to challenge you as we go out from this place that we would live in a way that says Jesus is Lord. I got to be honest with you. I say Jesus is Lord, but I don't always live like Jesus is Lord. In fact, sometimes I live in a way that says he's a liar or a lunatic. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not perfect. But my goal is that every day I would wake up in the morning and say, God, help me to live like your Lord today. Help me to live like your Lord of my life. Caleb's not Lord, you're Lord. Caleb's not Lord of this day, you're Lord. So my challenge to you is when we go out from this place and we're in our jobs and with our families and dealing with that annoying neighbor and, and our wife is picking at us and, and our kids are getting on our nerves, that we would, we would say, you know what, Jesus, you're Lord. I'm going to live today like your Lord. I'm going to respond to this situation like your Lord. Can we do that? Repeat this prayer after me, everybody in here, to solidify this decision that so many made. Repeat this prayer. Say, Jesus, you are Lord. You're not a lunatic. You're not a liar. You are Lord. I know today that if I confess you, I'll receive you. So today, you are my Lord. I love you, Jesus. You died for me. You paid the price. And today, I will live for you outside of these walls, at my job, with my family. I love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Come on, let's give God a shout out. This word encouraged you today. If you haven't heard, we recently purchased a building in Old Sacramento. This is going to be the permanent home of Project Church. We are here to stay in Sacramento. But I wanted to ask you if you would consider giving, uh, donating to help make this vision come to fruition. You can go to www.projectchurch.com backslash believe to see more about the building and to donate. God bless you and let's see what God can do through us.